As we open God's word together, let's ask our God to bless his word to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your scriptures, we pray that you would deal bountifully with your servants that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your testimonies are our delight. And by Christ's spirit, may they be our counselors now. And hear us for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts chapter 1. And I want to read together the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. We have the account of the ascension of Jesus from the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 1, and I'll read the first 11 verses. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Uh, Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, Some people have pointed out that we've come to Lord's Day 48, but this is the last Lord's Day of the year. So what was my plan for the catechism? Um, my plan was just to keep going Lord's Day by Lord's Day as we have it to, to continue to go through. I find that uh, after many years of doing this, what often happens to ministers is you have to cram the last part of the Lord's, Day, Lord's Days in at the end of the catechism because other things have gotten away from you during the year. Um, and I found over practice, it's better to treat them all carefully than to try to package them all together in the last minute dash to the end. Um, And as this is the first chance we've had to go through the catechism together um, as a congregation, um, I wanted to uh, spend the time to take to go through each one. So even though we're not finishing at the right time on Lord's Day 52, um, I think it's good for us to continue to consider these things. And I think it is fitting for us to finish the year talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, That is the hope of God's people. That's the thing we pray for. It's the second of the petitions. We might say it's, it's the second most important thing we need for body and soul. The first thing we need, most importantly, is for God's name to be glorified. Um, and the second most important thing we need is for his kingdom to come. Um, and the kingdom is a very important topic. 
Um, we know that that's an important topic as we see in this passage. It's the topic that Jesus talked about in those last few days before his ascension. Um, it's interesting to think about the fact that of all the things that you could talk about with Jesus, uh, for the last 40 days he's going to be with you. There might be any number of topics you think would be good to talk with Jesus about, uh, but the topic that he talked with them about was about the kingdom of God. Um, and the last question they posed to the Lord um, before his ascension has to do with the kingdom of God. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, some people pointed out maybe they weren't paying enough attention during the 40 days on the kingdom, uh, that they still don't understand what Jesus is planning to do with the kingdom, um, and that he needs to so, somewhat rebuke them. But I think the, the subject of the kingdom of God has always been a challenging one. Um, it's always been a difficult one for people to, to wrestle with. How, how do we understand the kingdom of God? Um, how does the kingdom of God relate to the kingdom of Israel? How does the kingdom of God relate to the church? Um, how are we to think of the kingdom of God? Is the kingdom of God here now? If it's not, when will it come? Right? Um, when is it going to be restored? That's the disciples' question. Um, and although we might be inclined to shake our heads and say they still don't get it, um, they're actually asking for the thing that we all would like to see. The kingdom restored in its fullness. Um, the glory of the Lord ruling on earth. And so it's always, I think, an important question to ask. Um, what is the kingdom of God? How are we to understand that? Um, and how particularly are we to understand that when it comes to praying this petition? Right? If you're going to pray, thy kingdom come, you kind of need to know what you're asking for. Um, you kind of need to know, well, how do I understand the kingdom of God? What are we meant to, to think about when we think about the kingdom of God? Um, and so I want to I talk about that this evening, to talk about how we are to understand the kingdom of God from the scriptures, and then how that informs what we're praying for when we ask, thy kingdom come. Um, how are we to understand the kingdom of God? Um, what, what do we think about when we think about the kingdom of God? Well, most people have pointed out when you think about the kingdom of God, you have to recognize that there are two aspects to the kingdom of God. Um, one is the, the aspect in which God rules over everything as king. Uh, the, the sort of universal kingship of God. He's the king over all. He's the king of everything. He made it all. It all belongs to him. He rules it all. He governs it all. Um, we sometimes talk about his kingship in that way, that he's a king of everything. And hopefully that doesn't need too much defense in, a, in this crowd, uh, to recognize that God is the king over all, blessed forever. Um, but that kingdom doesn't need to come, right? That kingdom is here. That kingdom has always been. Uh, that kingdom doesn't need to come. Um, and so when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're not talking about that aspect of the kingdom, the universal aspect of God ruling and reigning. We're talking about that special aspect of his kingdom, the kingdom of grace that he has revealed in this world. The kingdom that has always been comprised of a particular people for a particular saving purpose. That God has always had a kingdom of grace operating in this world. Uh, we, we've always been able to recognize that ever since the fall, this, the, the whole world has been composed of two kinds of people. People that submit to the kingship 
of God and people who resist the kingship of God. Right, Rebels who are opposed to his kingdom and those who are faithful subjects of his kingdom. And whenever we think about his faithful subjects, we're talking about the kingdom of grace. Those he's redeemed out of the world for his own purpose. That kingdom that he has chosen for himself. And we see that kingdom taking shape in a literal kingdom in the Old Testament where we we saw a civil kingdom where an actual king reigns over a particular area that was was called God's kingdom. Um, He had his king that ruled over it. It was a civil kingdom. Um, It was a ceremonial kingdom. It was filled with ceremonies and uh, the temple sacrifices and all of those things that showed they were part of the kingdom of God and different from all of the other kingdoms of this world. And it was also a spiritual kingdom. All of those things were pointing forward to spiritual realities in which God's people put their trust. Um, In the Old Testament, that kingdom of grace was a literal kingdom. It was a kingdom in a place. Um, And in the New Testament, the kingdom of grace expands beyond those borders. Everything that was pictured in the Old Testament comes to a glorious new reality with the coming of the king. Because he breaks down all the borders of that kingdom. And he says, you know, I no longer need a single place because now my rule is extended to the ends of the earth. And I don't need a civil government to rule in my place. I don't need to have a king of my own that I set on my throne. I will reign as king over my people. Right? This is the great good news of when Jesus comes. He's in a sense saying, I'm done ruling by the bozos that have never done a very good job. Those people that at their best could only kind of in a shadowy way prefigure what kind of king Jesus is. But when he comes, he says, now I'm reigning as king. And I'm king forever. And I have all wisdom and power and might. I don't need anyone to help me. And the authority of my kingdom has been extended to the ends of the earth. Right? And so the kingdom is blown up in terms of its civil, its civil form in the Old Testament. It no longer looks like that because it now extends to the ends of the earth. It's also blown up in terms of the ceremonies. Those all go away. Why? Because he's the fulfillment of all that the ceremonies pointed to. Right? What, what, what did the priesthood point to? That we need someone to intervene between us and God. What did the sacrifices point to? Without a shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. All of those things that that ceremonial kingdom pointed to are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he says, now that all is swept away because I've finished it. I've fulfilled it. It's that great priestly moment on the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ says, it is finished. The Old Testament is finished. I have fulfilled it. And we don't need any of those ceremonies that in a shadowy way point toward him because he is the reality. He is the true temple. He is the true high priest. And that's why at his death, the, the, court, the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. You don't need the temple anymore. 
Because the true temple, the the things that were pictured in heaven are now brought to reality in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need an earthly kingdom because you have an eternal king. You don't need earthly ceremonies anymore because the high priest, the true high priest after the order of Melchizedek has come. But it's still a spiritual kingdom. That doesn't change. It's still a kingdom of grace by which God is working out his saving plan in the world. That's why in the New Testament, whenever the Gospels speak of the kingdom of God, they're almost always speaking of the condition of the church in the New Testament. Um, As one commentator put it, he did put it this way, and you just need to find it. Um, In the Gospel, accordingly, the kingdom of God is scarcely ever used in any other sense than as denoting that state of dignity and freedom which belongs to the church of the New Testament under the reign of Messiah. That dignity and freedom that belongs to the people of God under the reign of Messiah. That was where you constantly found the disconnect with Jesus and his people. When they came and said, wait a minute, I thought the king was going to set us free. And he said, I did come to set you free. Um, I thought the king was going to restore his people. I have come to restore my people. But his vision is greater than their vision. It's beyond Israel. Um, When you say, are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? He's saying, yes, that and more. Bigger than Israel ever was. Better than Israel ever was. Greater than Israel ever was. That's the kingdom that he's talking about. That kingdom of grace that has come and ruled over by Messiah. Though now it's ruled by the eternal king who will defend and preserve us in the redemption that he's won for us and expand his rule unto the ends of the earth. That's the kingdom of grace that God has brought into this world. That's the kingdom that he's continuing to build. He's building it in his people and he's building it in his church. We we could say that kingdom of grace that God is working on in this world has an inward form and it has an outward form. It's a kingdom that he's working on in us. Um, that, that the kingdom of grace is growing in his people. He's made us to be a kingdom, Revelation says. What does that mean? What does it mean that he's made us into a kingdom? Well, it's talking about all the work that the king is doing in the hearts of his subjects. Right? That he's regenerated us. He's redeeming us. He's sanctifying us after the image of the king. He's preserving us by the work of the Holy Spirit in his kingdom until the kingdom comes in glory. That's the work of the kingdom of grace. That's the kingdom of grace being built up in its inward form in us. And he's also building up his kingdom in the world through his church. That institution that he's set in the world to preach the gospel, to gather in his people, Right, to administer the sacraments, to, to shepherd his people in his strength, to continue to remind them of the things that he's promised, to begin to practice now to live that heavenly life together. That's what the kingdom of grace is in this world. He's building it in us, making us a kingdom, and he's building the church as he promised. Um, and so the kingdom of God is always going to be a kingdom of grace in this world. But we also look to that day when the kingdom of grace becomes a kingdom of glory in the world to come. 
That special kingdom has always been a kingdom of grace in this world. Building us, building the church, building the people, gathering them in from the nations, gathering a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation until that great day when the king returns in glory. To turn that kingdom of grace into a kingdom of glory. To perfect all those blessings as we talked about this morning. To make all things new. And to make the kingdom of grace into the kingdom of glory. That's where this kingdom is heading. Grace in this world, glory in the world to come. Um, I love how one commentator put it. The kingdom of glory means that most blessed condition of the church in heaven when after all their enemies have been subdued, all the remains and consequences of sin have been removed, all the elect of all ages from the beginning of the world have been collected into one, all things shall be subject to God and shall produce the most perfect enjoyment of everlasting happiness. That's what the kingdom of glory will be when the king comes back. It won't just be a restoration of Israel. It'll be a better joy than Israel ever knew. Uh, the perfect, the, the most perfect enjoyment of everlasting blessedness. Um, that, that picture that we have in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And what is the, what is the ending of the work of, of Christ? That God may be all in all. That's describing the kingdom of glory. Um, that's why understanding the kingdom is so important for Christians, that we not make the mistake of thinking that we can build the kingdom of glory without the king. That we can bring the kingdom of glory now. No, the kingdom of glory will come later. That perfect state of the church and of the God's people will come when the king comes. We can't build the kingdom of glory without him. Uh, but under his banner, we continue to build the kingdom of grace. We continue to participate by his grace, in the building of the kingdom of grace. And so if we understand the kingdom correctly, then we really understand what we're praying for when we pray, thy kingdom come. We really then have a window into what we are asking for. We're asking first and foremost for the kingdom of grace to come in us. Right? That's, that's one of the things that we're asking for. When we say thy kingdom come, we're praying that more and more that kingdom of grace might be built up in its inward form in us. That God would do his work in our hearts and in our minds to conform us to the image of his son. Um, that's the first thing we're praying for as we, we read in question 123. Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Right? Grow the kingdom of grace in me so that I'm more and more fitted by your efforts for the, citizen king, the kingdom citizenship that I enjoy. So I'm a more fit citizen um, or, or if you like, a better fit for the, the kingdom. Um, and that happens through God ruling me by his word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to him. That's what we're asking for when we pray, thy kingdom come. Build your kingdom of grace in me. 
Psalm 143.10, that's, that's the prayer. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Or those well-known words from Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Rule me by your word and spirit so that more and more I would live a life that's pleasing to you. Help me by your grace to manifest those marks that should be seen in the life of a Christian and in the citizen of the kingdom of God. Um, and we have a really helpful summary of the marks of a Christian in Belgic Confession, Article 29. What marks a Christian? Well, the first mark of the Christian is faith. Um, that's a pretty simple one. Uh, faith, but the Belgic Confession gets more specific. That we show faith, and when having received Jesus Christ, the only Savior, Christians avoid sin, follow after righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor, neither turn aside to the right or to the left, and crucify the flesh with the works thereof. But this is not to be understood as if there did not remain in them great infirmities. But they fight against through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking refuge in the blood, death, passion, and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have remission of sins through faith in him. That is such a fine summary of what should mark the Christian life. It's not just a fine theological summary, it's a fine pastoral summary. Because when we read all that should qualify the Christian life, we begin to get nervous. When we read that it's marked out by someone who follows after the Lord and doesn't turn to the left or to the right, um, we say to ourselves, I'm someone who wanders off the path quite a bit. Um, I, I'm, like, you know, I'm like the Christian in Pilgrim's Progress who knows he should walk the straight way, but always finds himself thinking, well, maybe this will be a nice little shortcut. This will be a little easier way. Um, he gets out of the way, and whatever, what, what always happens when he gets out of the way? He always gets in trouble. Um, we're not to turn to the right or to the left, and we could become despairing if we read those list of things had we not been reminded um, this is not to be understood as if there doesn't remain in us great weakness and infirmity. That we're going to have to fight against that all of our lives. Um, but we do take refuge in Christ. His blood that washes away sins. His death that he died for us. His suffering that makes sure I will avoid the torment of God's wrath. His obedience that is uh, transferred to me by his gracious gift. Uh, we take refuge in all of those things. So we're, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in our God. But these are the things that help to show us that mark the Christian life. And that's what we're praying for when we pray thy kingdom come. Form your kingdom more in me. Build me up in the faith. Build me up in the faith. Um, 1 John 4.2 By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, confesses that Jesus is Christ has come in the flesh from God. Build me up in faith. So I submit to you in faith more and more. I trust in you more and more. Build me up in obedience. Um, you know, we don't ever want to be the people who say, well, God wants us not to turn to the right or to the left, but of course we can't do that because we're weak. So, And we kind of excuse our own laziness. 
Right? No, our petition should be, no, build me up in obedience. Help me to do a better job of not wandering off the path. Of remembering what, it, what happens when you wander. What it is to be lost. What it is to suffer uh, for disobedience. Help build me up in obedience. Help me to put to death the old self and its ways. Help me to put on Christ. Build me up in the faith. Build me up in obedience. Build me up in perseverance. Help me to endure. Um, Help me to avoid difficulty. Help me to fight. Right? There's nothing easy in the Christian life. We're always attracted to the easy program. Right? If I said, well, you know, the Belgian Confession talks about battling adversity, but here are four ways you can overcome adversity in your life. You get your pens ready. I know it. Even those, even those of you who are not taking notes, you'd start to okay. This is going to be really good. I need to write this down because what you want is four simple steps. But what Jesus says is, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And the gate is narrow that leads to life, and the way is hard, and few find it. There is no easy road. There is no easy path. It's a path that requires perseverance and it's a path that requires a fight. And so what we're saying to God is, I realize that this citizenship is going to require faith and it's going to require obedience and it's going to require perseverance. Help me to persevere. Help me to fight the good fight. Right. That's that's the encouragement we have in Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. To stand firm, to contend together, to hold the line, to be strong in the might of the Lord. Um, That's what we're praying for, that God would build us in perseverance so that we might be steeled for the fight that's before us. That he would build us up in faith, build us up in obedience, build us up in perseverance, and finally build us up in hope. The kingdom of grace should fill us with hope. Yes, the way is hard that leads to life, but it leads to life. Yes, we need to stand firm, but when we stand firm, we'll find that when the dust settles and the battle is over, that we're still standing. Right? That's, That's the point of the glory of fighting for the Lord, is you know you're on the winning side. Because our champion has already taken the field and overcome. And the one we're following has already won the battle. Uh, It's just the mopping up operation that's less. He's defeated every enemy and he's just waiting to destroy death until his time. But death has been overcome. It's not as if death is an enemy that's still yet to be subjected to the Lord. The Lord said in his life, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now is the ruler of this world cast down. There's no no question about who's the victor. 
It's just that last destruction has yet to come on his enemies. We're fighting on the winning side. We're fighting under the banner of the king. You can't beat an army whose, whose army gets stronger when they die. Right? Who, who are made stronger when you kill them. Who go to be with glory with the Lord forever. You can't, you can't beat a God who, who does that. And so we're praying, Lord, help us to fight. And help us to hope. To know that the victory is sure. To know that the fight ends in glory. To know that the fight ends in victory and ends in peace. Uh, that there is hope for the people of God. Why? Because of the blood, because of the death, because of the passion, because of the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only refuge. So we're praying, Lord, build the kingdom in us. And we're not just praying for ourselves, we also pray that the kingdom would be built in the world. Right? We want the kingdom to grow. We don't just want to be stronger in ourselves, we want the kingdom to multiply. We want other people to come in and know what we know and believe what we believe and hope as we hope. Right? We, we want others to know the glory of serving the Lord. And so that's the second part of what we're praying for. Help the kingdom to come in us and then help the kingdom to come in the world. Uh, I, I love how the, the catechism puts that. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. His kingdom comes by his preservation and increase of the church. We're praying that you would, despite the hostility, continue to build the church. And that's one of the glorious things about the way God works. It's always been found in the world that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The people who've tried to persecute it out of existence have found they've actually caused it to grow. And it's sort of an ingenious plan um, that God has for his church. It's an ingenious plan for the building of the kingdom because every, every person he brings into the kingdom is by definition weakening the kingdom of the devil. Have you thought about that? Every single person that's now in the kingdom of God was once in the kingdom of the devil. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Which means that every time Jesus brings someone into his church, he's by definition despoiling the kingdom of the enemy, making it weaker. Taking another one away that used to belong to him. That's why preservation and increase is there right with the destruction of the enemies. Because it's the destruction of the enemies that builds up the church. As he takes from the strong man's house and brings people into his own kingdom. Um, we're praying that God would build his church in the world, increase it by taking those who are currently under the dominion of the devil and bringing them into his kingdom of marvelous light. So that they can join us in the faith and they can join us in obedience and they can join us in the fight and they can join us in hope. Because those who are outside the kingdom of God have no hope. They are, as Paul described them, without hope and without God in the world. And what Christian can hear that and not pray desperately that God would build his kingdom and that those who are in the darkness might come into the light? Um, that should be our, our prayer, that God would build his church.
Um, and that's the glory of what we find in the scriptures. The bigger the hostility, the bigger the preservation. The bigger the hostility, the bigger the protection. Um, and, and the Lord's promise is sure. He will continue to build his church. Um, that's why it's one of my pet peeves as we get to know each other more and more. You'll hear more of my pet peeves from the pulpit, unfortunately. But it's one of my, it's one of my pet peeves when people say, you know, if the church doesn't do X, Y, and Z, you know, in 10 years, 15 years, there could be no church. And that, that to me is ludicrous. It's expressly against what the Lord of the church has said about the church. Right? What did he say, Matthew 16, 18? I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a complete change in how we tend to think about things, that the church is this little fortress in the world, this, this outpost of the Lord's glory in the world, and we're under siege by this great world that's against us. And we're just trying to hold on, and we're all like the disciples looking up in the sky and just hoping the reinforcements get here in time before we won't run out of ammunition and resources. It's the exact opposite. The devil is the one in the bunker. The devil is the one who's trying to bar the door and can hear it creaking as it's being pushed in. It's a completely opposite picture of the one he likes to tell. He likes to masquerade as an angel of light. He likes to masquerade as a power. He's a rat in a hole about to get dug out. God's people have to know and understand that. And so that's what we're praying for when we pray. Break down that kingdom and bring those prisoners out. And preserve and in your, increase your church against whom they fight. And that's why we have to have the great confidence that God is building his church. That Christ is building his church. That he's set before us, as he said, a door which no one is able to shut. The gates of hell will not prevail against the Lord. Um, and the devil can't close the, the gates of heaven. Um, the Lord will preserve and increase his church, and he will destroy and diminish his enemies. That's what we're praying for. Do that more and more in this world. Increase your kingdom in us. Increase your kingdom in the world. Tear down that which, that which is opposed to you, that you might bring it in, and preserve and increase your church. Um, and it's because of who's building the church and who's preserving the church and who's opposing the devil that Paul can say the kinds of things he does in Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Um, the Lord will bring peace through victory to his people. And so that's what we're praying for, that that kingdom would come more and more. And finally, we're praying that that kingdom would come in fullness. We're praying for the kingdom of grace to grow in us. We're praying for the kingdom of grace to grow in the world. But also, ultimately what we're praying for is for the kingdom of glory to come in fullness. For the kingdom of grace in this world to become the kingdom of glory in the world to come. And that's why, as the catechism rightly says, the final part of that prayer is, do all this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. Um, there's a time coming when we're not going to need to struggle anymore. Where the fight will be over. Where the soldiers will be recalled. The troops will be brought home. The king will come and triumph over all and all will be 
well. That's the great end that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. When the last enemy to be destroyed is destroyed. When the great end to the warfare has been brought by the return of the king. The kingdom has come in fullness. And the scriptures are filled with the hope for that day. Psalm 102.13 we read, You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is time to favor her. The appointed time has come. There is an appointed time coming. When they say, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, It's wonderful that Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or season that the Father is appointed by his own authority. Um, Sometimes we read that as kind of, you know, it's none of your business. Mind your business. Sometimes we need to be told that by God. But what's beautiful about what's contained in that answer is there is a time of restoration coming. You're just not supposed to know it. Right? Jesus doesn't say, well, there isn't going to be no restoration. You're totally wrong about that. He just says, it's not for you to know the time. That implies there is a time coming. There is an appointed time that is known to the Father. When all of his people will be gathered and Christ will come again in glory. When the kingdom of this world will, will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And he says to his people who are eagerly waiting for him, surely I'm coming soon. The more we pray for God's kingdom to come in fullness, the more we remind ourselves of those many ways that he promised, that coming is soon. But that's the way God's people are to think of his coming. As being very soon. And to live our lives as if what he says is true. Seems a kind of crazy thing to have to tell ourselves, right? That we should live as if Jesus meant what he said. But but that's what we have to do. That should be the Christian mindset. As we fight, as we labor, as we face the difficulties of this world, in terms of faith and obedience and perseverance and hope, that we still cling to that, to that, I've just got to do this for a little while longer. You can hold on for a little while longer, can't you? You can fight for a little while longer. Because the glory's coming. That's the way Jesus wants his people to think. Surely I'm coming soon. And so in gratitude for that, so because we're grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, let's offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Um, Let's worship the God who has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. And pray earnestly more and more that his kingdom would come. That his kingdom of grace would come in us. That his kingdom of grace would come in the world. And that his kingdom of glory would come in its fullness. That's a prayer worth praying. And it's worth remembering that all the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for... Your kingdom, we thank you for the king of the kingdom who has already come and worked the victory by his blood and obedience and passion and death. How thankful we are for our Savior. May he be our refuge. May we put our trust in him. May we seek to obey him. May we persevere in the fight after the example that he has given to us. May we hope in him. 
And may we remember that all those things that he has promised will one day come to fullness when he comes and he's coming soon. Lord, help us to to live in that hope and to continue to raise up that prayer to you that the kingdom of grace would come in us and in the world and in fullness. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.